0: Good morning. morning, everyone. It's good to see the uh, family of God together, the people of God. And a few faces I don't recognize. I'm Jordan, for those of you who, who don't know me. But it's uh, my privilege to be here and my pleasure to be sharing the Word of God with you. And I'm just praising God for uh, what we've been doing so far in, in worshiping Him, in contemplating His faithfulness and our need for faith. And uh, we really believe here at NCC that the sermon and the, the time of singing beforehand, go together seamlessly as an act of worship to God, and it's very true this morning because I'm going to be continuing to talk about faith and faith in God, and so God really has something to press upon our hearts and minds this morning, so praise Him. I'd just like to pray as I come to the Scriptures as well, so bow with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come before You, and Lord, we, uh, we come before You as needy people We come before you as as weak people, as people that are easily distracted, as people that are easily overwhelmed, as people that find excuses, as people that don't rightly honour your word as much as we ought to honour the holy scriptures of the living God. And so help us now to grasp what it is you'd have us here and help me to speak it through your divine power, I ask. Amen. One of the most common fears in the world is the fear of flying. So many people, when they get into an aeroplane, are just terrified. Are there some people here like that this morning? There's always a few, yeah. But this really should not be the case. I'm sure you've heard the statistics. You are much safer in an aeroplane than in a car you are over 100 times more likely to be involved in an accident driving than sitting in a plane. And yet, so many of us are terrified of flying. So, what's going on here? The statistics don't back up the feeling. And I think what it comes down to is a feeling of control. We like to be in control. Because when you're driving your car, you choose how fast you go, you choose the direction that you take, you're the boss, you're in control. But when you're in a car, when you're in a plane, sorry, you have to give up some of that control. A pilot that you can't see is making the decisions. Buttons that you can't see are being pushed to keep the plane in the air. When there's turbulence, you, you feel the effects, but you can't see it, let alone control it. And so being in a plane, you're, you're giving up control. I'm here to talk to you about increasing faith in God. And this can be a challenge for us because we like to be in control. And when you exercise faith in God, you're giving control up to Him. And just like flying is a lot safer than driving, being in God's will is a lot safer. Exercising faith in God gives up control, but it'll result in a more blessed life. And so, with that in mind, please turn in the scriptures to Luke 17. Luke 17 is where we'll be looking at this morning, and we're going to examine the first ten verses. Luke chapter 17, we're going to see a conversation between Jesus and the disciples, and we're at that point, the, the back end of the book, where Jesus is really focused on preparing His disciples for life after Jesus. Jesus knows He's going to die, He knows He's going to rise again and ascend, He's preparing the disciples for what they need for when He's gone. And it's a very applicable section for us because we need this as well to be able to do as God wills. In Luke chapter 17, we're going to see a theme of increased faith. And it's going to be one of those themes where sometimes it's subtle in the background and sometimes it's right in your face, but increased faith is going to be the theme throughout this section. And this morning, I want to present to you three motivations for increased faith. Three Motivations for Increased Faith. So, what we'll do is we'll get straight into it. And the first motivation for increased faith is simply this. You need increased faith. You need increased faith. Let's read the first five verses. This is where I get this from. Luke chapter 17, I'll read from verse 1 to verse 5. Then He, that is Jesus, said to the disciples... It is impossible that no offences should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Verse 5, and the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So our first motivation this morning, you need increased faith. And we get this as we examine those demands, those lifestyle choices that Jesus talked about. it all culminates in verse 5. If we're going to be able to meet those demands, we, like the disciples, need to acknowledge we need faith. We need increased faith. And so this is one of those points where we're going to go through how Jesus would have us live, and in the back of our minds, we acknowledge if we're going to meet these standards, we need increased faith. So with the theme of increased faith in the back of our minds, let's go through the text, uh, looking again at verse 1, and Jesus starts by saying, it's impossible... That no offenses should come. And this is a very important place to begin, particularly around a time of year, New Year, where there's a lot of optimism, where there's a lot of faith in the world, a lot of faith in humanity. Jesus gives us here a stern reminder there is sin. We live in a fallen world. People are going to sin, people are going to stumble. People are going to let you down and people are going to hurt you. And as Christians, we need to acknowledge this. We need to be aware of this. We can't go around pretending that everything is is great and everyone is perfect because we have a loving God. We live in the age before Jesus has come to make everything right. We live in an age where there is sin, where there is stumbling, where there is hurt. And so we need to make sure that we don't have rose-coloured glasses on and that we recognise that there is sin in the world. But with that in mind, how do we deal with that sin? As Christians, how do we approach that sin? And this passage is not so much about sin in your own personal life. I'm sure that you people know that we have to be those that are putting to death the sin in our life and making godly choices for God. What Jesus is going into here is the sin in other people's life and how do we confront that, how do we deal with that, how do we um, respond to that. And there's three types of sins that we have to be aware of that Jesus mentions here, all of which are difficult for us as Christians, all of which remind us we need increased faith. Have a look at verses 1 and 2 again. Let me read it for you. Uh, Then he said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offences should come But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. First dealing with sin we see is don't cause others to stumble. Don't cause others to stumble. The phrase little ones there refers to younger Christians or less mature Christians. It certainly can include children. But we need to make sure that our lives are not just focused on our relationship with God as if that's the only relationship that exists. There are people around us, and as you think about your own life, there are impressionable people around us that look at what we do, that look at what we say, what we teach, how we live, and they make decisions based on that. And we need to understand that we're accountable. We're accountable for how we live and how other people Interpret that and apply that. And so we need to make sure that we don't cause others to stumble. We need to be those that are living such godly lives that people can look at us and see us as people on fire for God, as opposed to people that don't think God matters much. We need to make sure our words are honouring to God and bring Him glory, as opposed to having words that just sound like the world. We need to make sure that we're thinking of other people, And how they are going to be influenced by what we say and what we do. And this is something that Jesus takes very seriously, as you can see from the imagery that He's using here. Just imagine having a millstone, a very, very large stone tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea. So we're talking about something quite gruesome here, it's a certain death, a drowning, Reminds me of the mafia, what they do to to people that they don't want around anymore. And yet this is preferable to what these people deserve. And that gives you an idea of how seriously Jesus takes it when we cause others to stumble. And so our first dealing with sin is we need to make sure that we're not causing others to stumble. Our second dealing with sin, for which we need increased faith, have a look at verse 3. Take heed to yourselves, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And I'll just pause there, because rebuking others is the second dealing with sin that we see here. Not only are we to live such lives that we don't cause others to stumble, but we're also to confront those who sin against us and rebuke them. And this is not a particularly pleasant thing to hear, I certainly didn't like it myself as I was reading it, being quite a non-confrontational person. But this is how God views sin. Let me compare that to how we and how I typically view such situations where we're sinned against. If someone calls me a name, I want to call them a name. That is the, the natural human response. Tit for tat, sin for sin, as it were. That's obviously not what Jesus has ordained. And the other response is simply the the let it be response. If someone sins against me and really hurts me, I'll just let it be. They're in sin, and I'm just not going to do anything. But the problem with that is someone beloved of God is still in sin, and God hates sin. And thus, we're called, when we're sinned against, to rebuke so that there can be harmony and peace, and there can be a relationship restored as opposed to sin remaining and being dishonouring to God. Jesus simply says it here, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. But I'd just like to give you a few tips. When you go to rebuke someone, to bear in mind, uh, firstly, do so in love. Rebuking is not something that you do with anything else being in your heart but love. 1 Corinthians 16:14: do everything in love. When you go to rebuke someone, do so after a self-examination. You don't want to be going and pointing out the speck in someone else's eye when there's a plank in your own. So if you go to rebuke, do so in love. Do so after a self-examination. And do so with the goal of forgiveness. Rebuking isn't something you do just so that you can feel holy or feel that you're doing the right thing. It's something you do so you can restore relationship, so that you can remove sin and replace it with peace and faith and bring about what God wants in the world. And so when your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and let's remember to do that in love, after self-examination, and with a goal of forgiveness. Then we get to the third dealing with sin, and that's in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. Let me read it for you, please. Verse 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So we see that we need increased faith, because we're, we're called not just to not cause others to stumble, not just to rebuke others, but also to forgive. And I can say forgive is in capitals, because Jesus makes a, a very clear point of it here. If someone sins against you seven times in a day, you're still to forgive them. Forgiveness is quite possibly the hardest thing that we are called to do as Christians. It's quite possibly the least natural thing that we can do in response to sin. But in my opinion, it's the greatest testimony that we can show for for the kingdom. Christians have been forgiven so much. Brothers and sisters, if you're saved, you've been forgiven so much. And that forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. And so we're called to forgive others. And of course... If forgiveness was so easy, it would mean that there hadn't been hurts involved in the first place, that there hadn't been offence involved in the first place. Forgiveness is going to be difficult, and yet that's what we're called to do. We're called to forgive again, and 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 I said that seven times to match what Jesus said here. And that's just one day's forgiveness. The point here is clear. We are called to forgive, to be those that give over the hurt that we've experienced to God and let Him be the judge and restore and renew relationships. If I can quote John MacArthur here, such forgiveness is impossible, but it is Him possible. And that's really the point that All of these things are pointing towards. In all of these dealings with sin, the rebuking, the forgiving, the not causing others to stumble, we need God's help. And thus you see what the disciples say in verse five. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And I can't think of an any more natural response to what Jesus has said. If we're personally going to be able to keep these things that Jesus has said, we need increased faith. We need help, but praise God, He's a God who gives it. And so we look at all those things that we're called to do, and we understand that we need increased faith. Our second motivation this morning is you are powerful with increased faith. You need increased faith, but praise God, you are powerful with increased faith. And I get this from verse 6. The apostles said to the Lord, I'll read from verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said... If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You are powerful with increased faith, and this is a great encouragement. Because What kind of power are we talking about here? Clearly, we are talking about God's power. No one can just speak and make a tree pop up and move. If my words had that power, I'd have the most successful tree removal business in the state. This is God's power. And yet, God's power is available to those with faith. Isn't that tremendous? Clearly, it's God that's moving the tree, and yet the tree moves after a person, after someone with faith speaks. And this is a tremendous encouragement. Now, uh, Pastor Chad reminds us, context, 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 and the greatest of these is context. So what is this tree? Are we supposed to literally move trees? Should you just kind of sit where you are and try and shut that door with some faith? Well, we've just seen why the disciples asked for increased faith. It's because of the, the demands of living, the difficulty of dealing with sin, the forgiveness, the rebuking, the not causing others to stumble. And so what Jesus is saying in context is there's tremendous power when you have faith, but there's power to forgive. If you have roots of bitterness that are deep within you, making it difficult, nigh impossible to forgive, you have God's power with faith to forgive. It can be done. If you have incredible timidity, such that someone sinning against you keeps doing it, and you know you should rebuke them, but you just can't bring yourself to do it, you have God's power to be able to do it. And the same goes for rebuking, um, and the same goes for not causing others to stumble. You have God's power. And what an encouragement this is. And what I love is that Jesus compares faith to a mustard seed. And what do you know about a mustard seed? Well, for starters, it's very small. And this is no uh, mistake by Jesus, he is intentionally comparing it to something so small because even a little faith can accomplish great things. And what an encouragement for us this morning. If you have little faith, if you are struggling in your faith, if you are doubting in your faith, if you are just getting by with your relationship with God, you have incredible, immense, divine power to do what God wants. Because what matters more is not how much faith you have, but who your faith is in. What matters more is the person you place your faith in. Because I could have a lot of faith in an unreliable person, but I'd be let down, and the strong faith would be worthless. But even a little faith in an all-powerful God is sufficient to work miracles. Work miracles in your life as you seek to become more godly and more holy for God, and even answer prayer. And as a church, we can be a testimony to that as we've seen God answer prayer this year. Even a little faith can accomplish great things. But there is another aspect of the mustard seed, and one that doesn't present itself as obviously. If you go back to Matthew 13 and Luke 13, you'll see another time that Jesus referred to the mustard seed in the parable of the mustard seed, where he likened the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. And in a nutshell, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's very small, but when it's planted, it becomes an immense tree. Even birds can nest in its branches. And what Jesus is saying, and what I'm noticing about a mustard seed, is there's two key features of it. It's not just small, it grows. And the lesson is obvious for us as well as we consider faith. Yes, small faith can do wondrous things, but our faith is called to grow. This Jesus rebuked the disciples, saying, O ye of little faith. Four times he did that in the Gospels. Clearly, Jesus wants our faith to grow. And what's really interesting is I went back to the Greek, and I was actually shocked, and you might be as well. When you go to the Greek, it doesn't say, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. It says, if you have faith as a mustard seed you have the word little in your translation, that's been put there by translators as they interpret it the best way to be uh, translated. But literally, it's just faith as a mustard seed. And so we need to remember that, yes, little faith can accomplish great things. Praise God for His power. But our faith ought to be growing as well. And as we look back at the year, as we have done even this morning, and consider the tremendous faithfulness of God, let's not soon forget it, to reiterate Steve. Let's be those that draw upon it, and use it to grow our own faith. God has already answered so many prayers for us. Let's keep praying. Pray more boldly, more expectantly, with more faith. As we seek to see God work in our midst, work in our own hearts to grow us, pray with great faith. I'd like to share with you a bit of a biography of Hudson Taylor, just a couple of events in his life. He might be familiar to you, but he was a man of great faith. Hudson Taylor, missionary to inland China, and he had a tough time of it there. When he was ministering, his wife died, and his eight-year-old daughter also died, and yet he still had that passion to see the Chinese people reached for God. And so he prayed, and he recorded this prayer in his Bible, and the essence of the prayer was God, I want to see these unreached peoples reached for you. All these counties that still haven't heard the gospel, I want to see them reached for you, but I need funds to do this. I need strength, I need grace. And so we prayed this prayer. And do you know what happened next? Well, he got incredibly ill and was on his deathbed for six weeks. And yet, he recovered and God sent him the money through an anonymous donor, And the uh, letter that came to him said, this is for the work of God in fresh provinces. And there was a large sum of money attached. And thus God worked. God uprooted the tree, as it were. He intervened. And I love, because the story continues, Hudson Taylor's faith grew. He then said, God, give me 100 missionaries. Send over 100 missionaries from China to help, uh, from England to China, to help with this work. And he went back to England to recruit some people. And his fellow missionary said to him, Hudson, it's great that you've asked for a hundred. You're not going to get a hundred, but you'll get more than if you just ask for a few. And Hudson Taylor said to him, you can welcome the last of the hundred into China. And what do you know, how many people signed up to go? 600. 600 people signed up to go. Only 102 could get on the boat because that's all they had ambitiously planned for. And I use the word ambitious uh, facetiously there. God's power is great, and it's accessible through increased faith, even a little faith. So be encouraged. You need increased faith. The demands of our life and how we are to deal with sin are indeed hard. You are powerful with increased faith. God is mighty and living and working and active. Our last motivation to increased faith we'll see in verses 7 to 10, you owe increased faith. You owe increased faith. Let me read verse 7 to 10 for you. And which of you, having a servant ploughing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. You owe increased faith. Now, key to understanding this section, which does seem a little odd, is the master-servant relationship and Jesus is referring to a one-servant household here and in a one-servant household, the master would protect the servant and provide lodging for the servant and the servant was expected to go and do work and the primary work the servant did was going out to the fields, looking after the sheep during the day but also preparing the meals, preparing the midday meal, preparing the evening meal and there was a clear understanding of roles. Jesus is using this to illustrate the principles of our service to God. He asks rhetorical questions that point at what the servant wouldn't do and what the master wouldn't do. So let's go through it verse by verse and see what Jesus is saying here. Verse 7, and which of you having a servant ploughing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? The servant doesn't finish the work after looking after the, uh, the sheep and come in and the master say, hey, put your feet up, come to the table, let me serve you. The master doesn't treat the servant as a master, the master treats the servant as a servant because that's what he is. And on the other side, the servant does not expect to be treated as a master, the servant expects to be treated as a servant because that's what He is. And the application for us is clear. God is our Master, and we are His servants. We need to expect to be treated as servants. We don't treat God as if He is our servant. God is not there at our beck and call to bring us happiness. God is at work accomplishing His purposes... And we are His servants to be used in those purposes. And so we need to have a real understanding of ourselves as servants of God. And with that proper mindset, then we can be even more grateful for the gracious, loving, wondrous Master that our God is. Go to verse 8 with me. But will He not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards, You will eat and drink. This is what the master will do. The master expects the servant to finish the job, to complete the work, to do all that is expected of him. And Christians, the same is true of us today. God expects us to finish the work, to be faithful to the end. Think of it this way if you work from nine till five, The boss doesn't come up to you at noon and say, hey, go home. If you work from nine to five, you work until five. That's what you owe. And as Christians, we owe our life. And I can tell all of you here this morning, there is work that you have to do for God. I can tell this because you are breathing. God has kept you alive, all of you. So there is work to be done. Don't knock off early. There is still service to do for our king. We need to finish the job. As we sang, finish the race by faith. And then we get to verses 9 and 10. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. We saw from verse 7 that the master treats the servant like a servant. We see from verse 8 that the master expects the servant to finish the job. And here, we're not getting a lesson on gratitude, that's not what the thank you's about. What we see here is a lesson on grace, or the master doesn't owe the servant anything special just because the servant did the job. The servant doesn't tend the sheep then make the meal, and the master say, you did your job for today, have a cow. Okay, that's, that's not what happens. If the servant does his job, he's done his job. He has done what was owed. He hasn't earned anything extra. And the application for us is, is really important because it's so, so easy to become self-righteous. And one of the dangers of growing in Christ is to become uh, smug in your growth. And yet we're called to increased faith, we're called to grow in Christ... And yet we need to recognize that we are utterly dependent on God's grace. Those of you here who've had a really bad week, as it were, and and stuffed up and sinned and done things to God that you shouldn't have done, you are utterly dependent on God's grace. And those here who've had a good week, who've been on fire for God and been faithful to Him, you are utterly dependent on God's grace. All of us here need God when we sin, when we do what is good, we still need God. If you live your whole life and have a godly marriage and and raise great kids and remain faithful to God and are generous with your time and your money and you die proclaiming Jesus, when you get to heaven, God doesn't owe you anything for that. You have just given Him what He deserves. That's what's being spoken about here. We all need to understand this and someone who did understand this was Corrie Ten Boom's auntie, and she had some great words on her deathbed. Corrie Ten Boom's auntie, auntie Yarns, was a a lovely woman, a woman of great faith, a woman of great generosity, who spent her life working in orphanages and helping other underprivileged people, and auntie Yarns got a terminal illness, it was actually diabetes, but that was terminal back then, they didn't have modern medicine, but she was on her deathbed and she was dying, and her brother walked in and said, Yarns, some people... Go to God empty-handed, but you've done all these great things for Him. Congratulations. And Jan said, All that I have done are but trifles and trinkets. We all go to the Father with empty hands. And how true it is. We are here. We are saved by grace. We are living by grace. And the good deeds that we do are because of the grace of God. And they're nothing less than what He deserves. And so, as you grow in your faith, as you mature, and I pray that you will, just continue to remember that even as you mature, even as you put in these godly habits, you're still utterly dependent on God's grace. And so, in wrapping up this morning, as we look at all these aspects of faith and increased faith, we see that you need increased faith. Don't neglect the work that's to be done in your life in dealing with sin in the world, which is there. Be ready to rebuke. Be ready to forgive, even though it hurts. And be ready to not cause others to stumble, those who are watching your life. To do that is tough. You need faith. You need increased faith. But you can get it. In fact, if you have faith, you already have the power necessary. You are powerful with increased faith. God is on your side, Christian, so be encouraged. And also, though the job may seem daunting, a proper perspective makes you recognize that it's nothing less than what you owe Him. It's the job that has to be done. You are a servant of the King. You owe increased faith. And so as we enter into the new year, I pray that it'll be a good year, a godly year, a year of you recognizing that you are dependent on God's grace, and a year where God's tremendous power can, can work through you. Shall we close this morning with a, a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we we come to you now. And Lord, we are humbled by how great you are. We're in awe of how powerful you are. And indeed, Lord, find it difficult to fathom that with your tremendous power, you choose to work with vessels like us and a vessel like me. So, God, uh, we just pray that you are our inspiration, that you are our satisfaction. Lord, increase our faith. May we be those that trust you more and more. And then as we see you working, continue to trust in you and depend on you more and more. I thank you so much for this body of Christ and pray that you do wondrous things in the hearts of each and every one. And Lord, may we bring you glory through our conduct, through our interactions, through all that we do. Thank you so much for all that you have done for us all that you're doing for us and all that you will do for us. And we do this in praise of Jesus Christ. Amen.